The New Testament reading for today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And as we look at Psalm 49, we're going to see the connection of God's wisdom, and we're going to see God's wisdom in our redemption from Psalm 49. But here Paul picks up that theme as uh, Christ has finished his work for us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through, through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And please turn with me also to Psalm, verse, or Psalm 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both high and low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and their wealth to leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations. Though they, call, though they called lands by their own names, 
Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul shall not go to the generation of his fathers, who will never see, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's through your word that you created the heavens and the earth. We thank you that it's your word that you have revealed through your scripture concerning your eternal word, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our Savior and Lord. And we thank you that it's through your word that you create new life in our lives. That through your word you stir in us love and affection and trust in Jesus Christ. And that it's through your word we have a hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we long for the day that when we will see Jesus Christ face to face when he comes back for us and raises us from the dead. And so, Lord, we ask that your word again anew would create in us new life, new creation life, a life of your resurrection glory, even as we live here in a, a time of sorrow and weakness and sadness and despair and much evil. But we thank you that your word gives us hope. And so we trust you, our Heavenly Father, to, to again meet us through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. How much wealth do we need to live forever? Recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, The Longevity Clinic Will See You Now. New treatment centers cater to people obsessed with fighting aging. The article goes on to say that longevity clinics, clinics aim to do everything uh, to prevent chronic disease, to even tennis elbow, all with the goal of optimizing the patient's health for more years. Clients pay as much as $100,000 a year for sometimes unproven treatments. The article goes on to say the center capitalizes on America's, Americans' obsession with living longer. Now, we certainly should value our health. And if we can use our wealth to erode our health, all the better. I think we would all agree that health is more valuable than wealth. Yet the Bible tells us that an obsession with wealth to promote our longevity and reputation is a losing proposition. That obsession is a demonstration of our pride, our foolishness, our lack of perception and covering up of our emptiness. 
Life is short no matter how long we live. It, it does go by so fast. And so we better have a correct understanding of ourselves and a better confidence than health, wealth, and reputation. We need God. We need him to rescue us from our plight of death and more importantly, from the self-deception and denial of reality. We need him to establish his grace through us in Christ for in what he has done. And so the main point of this message is that wisdom proclaims God's plan for our glorious destiny that's found only in the ransom of Christ. Psalm 49, I believe, is a, is, was restated by the church father Irenaeus in the second century that the glory of God is a human fully alive. And that's what God wants us as Christians to be fully alive in him and in his grace. And so the first point I'd like us to consider this morning is that wisdom proclaims a message for every person. And if you read this psalm, you notice that there are four, four movements in this psalm. One is a call to all peoples to hear God's wisdom revealed in his word. The second movement in this psalm is to show our need for a ransom. That death is, in, is inescapable and there is no way that we can get around it no matter how wealthy we make it. And then the third movement of the psalm shows us that there is a ransom. That there is a, a, a way to avoid the eternal death. That God has provided a ransom that we cannot pay for ourselves. And the fourth movement is an application because we know as God's people that God has ransomed us. Now, Old Palmer Robertson, his book on the Psalms is really helpful to help us situate where Psalm 49 fits. In the first book of the Psalms, which is Psalms 1 through 41, when, when the Psalmist talks about God's enemies or the other nations, it's always in opposition. There's always a fight and there's always a battle. In the second book of the Psalms, there's a, a change that occurs. Remember back in Psalm 2 in the first book, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples imagine a vain thing? But God has established his anointed one on the throne of Zion. And when you get to like Psalm 45, there is the royal psalm where the royal son is exalted and put on the throne. And then in chapters 46, 47, and 48, Zion is established safely. And then we sang that uh, psalm from Psalm 48, that the nations come to Jerusalem and say, it's protected. God has his hand on Zion because his king is reigning. And so we come to Psalm 49, where there's a call to all nations to hear. Notice verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both high and low, rich and poor together. What this is teaching us is that God's revelation is designed for all peoples. It does not matter about our status or our importance. It doesn't matter where we fit economically. The truth of God applies to all. Life is short, temporary, transitory, so no matter what your status, wealth, or social standing, hear the wisdom of God. John Chrysostom, a church father, says to his 
congregation in Constantinople in the fourth century as he's commenting on these verses. Since your neighbors and community count the most and are of equal value and esteem, why is it you puff yourself up and see a difference? There is a commonality of nature, a commonality of birth, a commonality of relationship. So why do you introduce external circumstances as a basis of difference? And Chrysostom says this, not me. I will not stand for it. And that is something that we as Christians should, be, should understand is that this gospel is for all people. No matter what their status is, no matter what their race is, no matter where they fit in, in, the, in the culture. There was this sad obituary in last Sunday's Pioneer Press. Part of this description was this. Brian was bullied as a child and teenager because of his shyness and vulnerability. As an adult, he did not fit in. He never learned to use a computer or cell phone, which kept him from applying for most jobs. He worked and supported himself through paper routes, aluminum, canned recycling, and janitorial work. He was exploited by employers. His last job was cleaning a bingo hall at midnight for $10 an hour for seven nights a week, 364 days a year with just less than the minimum weekly hours to have any rights or benefits. He had no friends or family who kept up with him. He was quiet, smart, generous, and lonely. And that's why the message is for all people. That's why the message that's proclaimed in the scripture is for everyone. Jen Oshman in her book, Welcome, says the church is like the light of a porch shining in a dark world. This is an invitation to come home. That's what the church is. It's an invitation to come home to God and to Christ. As Peter says to Cornelius and Paul to the Romans, God is not a respecter of persons based on economic, social status or race. The message is for all peoples. Now notice with me verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist goes on. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Observe the psalmist is speaking wisdom, but he's also a listener. The one who speaks is also giving ear. Why? Because the psalmist is speaking God's truth. And so not only is he saying that the wisdom of God applies to all peoples, it applies to him. It applies to me. This is a great example of the fact that the Bible is inspired of God, and yet he's using men to write his words and his scripture. God is the one who reveals truth through human authors. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. How careful then that we who preach and teach God's word need to be listeners to God's word as well as proclaimers. Now notice what he says here in verse 4. The psalmist says in verse 4, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. This psalm was sung for instruction. 
And this is also connected to the title of the psalm. Notice the title of the psalm says to the choir master, a psalm, a psalm of the sons of Korah. What the Korah clan was a family of, of Levites who were consecrated to musical worship at the temple. One can imagine that, that this psalm was sung while a faithful Israelite would bring their lamb for the Passover, or goats and rams and bulls for other sacrifices. And the background would be like a minstrel group playing music and singing, not just for background music, but for instruction. So that temple worship would not just be an action, but an expression of devotion motivated, motivated by divine wisdom. Notice that the psalmist calls God's wisdom a proverb and a riddle. There seems to be an apparent common sense to God's truth and about what the psalmist is about to say, yet we as humans, we don't get it. Proverbs are sayings that refer to an earthly reality, but point to God's truth. We all know life is short, yet we think that we'll live forever. We all know that wealth cannot buy us security and happiness, but we pursue it and then feel satisfied when we have it. We know that a title or reputation is not lasting, but we seek them just the same. That's why we need God's wisdom. That's why we need not only a revelation of wisdom, but a heart to receive that wisdom. We need to remember that this message is to all peoples. This is a word that needs to be proclaimed to all classes and all nationalities. Remember what Jesus said about the temple on Palm Sunday. My house is a house of prayer for all nations. So let's look at the second part. We've seen God's call for all peoples and that God has revealed his wisdom in his word. The second point is God's wisdom proclaims the need for a ransom from death in verses 5 through 14. In verses 5 through 9, the, psalm, the psalmist describes the obsession for the accumulation of wealth. And then in verses 14, the psalmist describes the obsession for reputation that supposedly wealth can bring. Death cannot be escaped, but maybe I can leave something for someone, which of course is not necessarily wrong. But the idea that I can somehow build a monument to myself so that people won't forget me. Well, we've seen how that works in our society to today. And so the psalmist says in verses 5 and 6, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of the riches. So how does the idea of wealth function in this psalm? What makes it so bad? In, at least in this psalm, there's a whole lot we could say about the biblical idea of wealth. But in this psalm, it represents how we attain status by our effort. We create an identity for ourselves by what we do. We, we promote our reputation for the long term by building monuments for ourselves. Unless we see and understand that there's a better world and a better future in God, there can be, there, there might be reasons, if there was, if there was not a future for, that God had for us, we might be impressed by the accumulation of wealth and its entitlements and ability to manipulate others to get their way. And that's why the, the, the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 30 verse 8 says, give me neither poverty or riches. Our ambition to justify ourselves to wealth creation is an indication of our shame and emptiness. Just as Adam and Eve covered their shame with fig leaves, Paul said it this way, that God justifies us apart from works, not by anything we do. 
And so the psalmist asks this important question. How can a human being offer a payment for his sins? How can a human pay a price that will deter the reality of death and its finality? And so he says in verses 7 and 8, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his wrath or the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, there's many ways that we can redeem, they could redeem in the Old Testament Israel, how they could redeem a, a, a lost sheep or a lost goat, or if someone was wrong, there could be a redemption, but there is no redemption in Exodus 22 or about what a human could offer, a sinful human could offer to avoid death. The only way we can attain the new creation resurrection is by atonement that must be made, but no sinful human being can make it. The psalmist is building a case that if, a, if human beings are to discover the purpose that God has for humans, they need to be redeemed. Yet who or what can redeem the human life? The psalmist has brought the most important question that a human being can ask. Who can reverse the fall? Who will make an atonement for my sin? Who will bring my life back to the purpose that God intended? Who will save me from death? Verses 10 and 11 says, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations. So they call lands by their own names. Verse 12 and 13, But man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. Now, verse 12 is a refrain of, of Psalm 49. At the end of the Psalm, verse 20, there's a similar phrase there where it says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. No matter how much wealth that I accumulate, no matter how much I pursue a lasting reputation, none of these pursuits will prevent death. None of that will prevent separation from God and an eternity under God's wrath. And so our response to this call of wisdom is crucial. That's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verses 35 through 7 through 37, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For, or what can a man give in return for his soul? And and now the psalmist then describes the destiny of people who have not received God's purpose, who have not heeded this wisdom. Look at verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death will be their shepherd. One can almost see sheep in the dim darkness of a storm heading toward a deep pit directed by a dark force guiding them to eternal death. Compare how the wealthy in this psalm work hard for their wealth. Look how they work hard for their reputation to last after death. But who will guard and direct their afterlife? Death itself. How opposite it is to Psalm 23, where we can say confidently as God's people, the Lord is my shepherd, but for those who reject God's wisdom, who reject the warning, death, will be their shepherd. 
The psalmist continues his description of the destiny of those who trust in their wealth. And the upright shall rule them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. All the effort to build wealth for protection, safety, and comfort, all the plans and strategizing for life after death, all consumed in the place of death, commonly known as hell. Recall that I mentioned that the sons of Korah were singing this psalm as the Israelites were coming to the temple. You might also recall their ancestor Korah is recorded in number 16 as leading a rebellion against Moses. Moses said in that passage, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with their households and all the people who belong to Korah and all their goods. So then they and all who belong to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All the Israelites around them fled at their cry, for they said, Let lest the earth swallow us up. And so the sons of Korah, as they are now doing as God would require them as Levites, singing and praising God as people are bringing sacrifices to the temple, will say, our family knows a little bit about this. But by God's wisdom, by God's grace, by you receiving the wisdom that we're talking about in this psalm, even though your destiny may not be as dire as it was for our ancestor Korah, the end result is just as dire if you trust your wealth. Consider the sadness of this description, the sovereignness of this reality. God's call from Scripture is you do not have to end up this way. But if you divide to defy God's wisdom, then your destiny is death. Death will be your supervisor. No light, no beauty, no delight. But your form will be consumed, not just that your body will rot, but your very person will slowly but eternally become more decrepit. But for those who receive this warning and heed the wisdom of the psalm, the glory of God will be displayed in their eternal destiny. That is what the psalmist says, and the upright shall rule them in the morning. We will, in the resurrection, rule and reign with Christ. And that is why we have a desperate need for a ransom that leads to resurrection. And so we get to the third movement of the psalm, centered on verse 15. The good news of the psalm, of the psalm, the center of the psalm. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Sheol. The psalmist has said that there's no human being that can give a ransom for another. But here the psalmist says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. The confidence of the psalmist is that God will provide a payment that is worthy, valuable, and priceless, that will rescue him from the power of death and bring him to the destiny, to the fulfillment of being fully alive in God's resurrection splendor. We see the importance of the atoning work of Christ as a payment for our sin. Just as Abraham stated to Isaac on the way to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22.8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. 
And John Chrysostom's commenting on this verse says, do you want to know how great the price for your souls? The only begotten, intending to redeem us, gave not the world, not another human being, not land, not sea, but his precious blood. Charles Spurgeon says this, no redemption could find man in riches, could redeem man in riches, but God has found it in the blood of his dear son. We see how precious and effective the work of Christ is that it brings about for his people a future resurrection that's even revealed in the Old Testament. John Calvin comments, here we have a convincing proof of the faith which the saints under the law lived and died. It is evident that their views were directed to another and higher life to which the present life was only preparatory. The Apostle Peter says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then Peter goes out in that chapter to say, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our very lives are bound to the wisdom that God calls us with. We will die, but how will we prepare? Will we receive God's wisdom, God's purpose? God has paid the price of his own dear eternal son so that death will not be our shepherd and our form eternally consumed. The Apostle Paul echoes this psalm in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-6, through 6, where Paul, too, has all classes of people in mind. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. And then Paul speaks of Christ's ransom on our behalf, where there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Implicit in the psalm that we're studying in 1 Timothy 2 is God's intense concern that lost people will hear and repent. Jesus also echoes this psalm when the disciples were arguing among themselves about their own status and greatness. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What an amazing truth that God in the person of his eternal Son made the payment on our behalf so that we would receive life, eternal life, in the presence of our God. We have this hope that God will receive us. He will welcome us. He will own us as his own. Jesus said in John 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you or receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And Hebrews 9, 27 says, So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What a blessing that Christ has ransomed us and we will be received and welcomed into the new creation. We have great hope beyond the grave. Richard Baxter says it this way, let, let us never look at a grave except to see our resurrection beyond it.
The larger catechism, question 90, says, What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up to Christ in the clouds shall be set on his right hand. And there openly acknowledged and acquitted and shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men and shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul in the company of innumerable saints and angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion where the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. The sons of Korah were singing this psalm to those under the old covenant that there's a reason why you come to the temple. There is a reason why you offer sacrifices, but these sacrifices are not the ransom. They are not sufficient to ransom, but they point to something greater. There is a ransom that Christ will, that a ransom that God will provide. And we as God's people can say, that's Jesus. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not weighed with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. May we sing the ransom has come. The resurrection is sure. Praise to the worthy lamb. And so that brings us to the final movement of this psalm, where the psalmist and the sons of Korah tell us how to live. It says here in verses 16 and 17, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not come down after him. The psalmist had said in verse 5, Why should I fear in the days of trouble? For those who are wealthy and are obsessed with their reputation at the end of life, nothing. Nothing for them. Nothing but death ruling, presiding, guarding, and disintegrating their person forever. The second thing the psalmist tells us is that find your blessing and satisfaction and delight in God, his salvation, promised and glorious destiny, where he compares what the ungodly 